why didn't we save that for the end? Uh, I mean, <laughs> that puts a lot into perspective right there, and I appreciate that. I definitely, definitely appreciate my mom and, and my wife and, and uh, the blessing that they are to me and my kids. And so you certainly are, are due, all you moms out there are due uh, more honor than we give, more thanks than we give. So uh, I'm just glad to be here with you on Mother's Day. And now I'm going to talk about overcoming our unrighteous judgments, <laughs> which is not really about Mother's Day, but maybe a, a blessing to mom if you would judge her righteously and see through maybe the mom goggles every once in a while. But I am excited to, to bring this message this morning because, uh, frankly, this is something God is working on in my own heart. And uh, I think it, it may be something that uh, he wants to work on in your heart as well. If you haven't heard, there is a new John 3.16. The old John 3.16 was John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, right? Everybody knew John 3.16. In fact, if you were to tune into a baseball game, there's a good chance you might see behind home plate somebody holding a sign that read John 3.16. Even a non-Christian would know that verse. The new John 3.16 is Matthew 7.1. This is the new most popular verse, the most famous verse. Now, the people who can, can quote it to you may or may not know that it's actually found in Matthew 7.1, but they certainly hold Christians to this principle, and they may or may not hold themselves to this principle, but here's what it is. The, the new John 3.16, Matthew 7.1, judge not that you be not judged. Here's the way people express it in words or on t-shirts. Don't judge me, or only God can judge me. Both church attenders and non-church attenders alike use this verse, and they use it in this way. Christians are too judgmental. We need to love people, not go around judging people, telling them they're bad, or telling them that what they're doing is wrong. Genuine love is a love that receives me just as I am. So if you're judging me by saying I am sinning, you are not loving me. Is that what the new John 3.16 actually means? Well, I want to spend some time, I am going to go to James 4.12 in a few moments, but I want to spend some time talking about the topic of judging. This is very important in our world today and in our own hearts before God. It is true that Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1, to judge not. Here's the full context. This is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, 
but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, that self-righteous pride that tends to blind us, take that log out of your own eye, and then you can still go to your brother and take the speck out of his. But let me point out the verse immediately following that statement by Jesus. This is Matthew 7, verse 6. This is not the new John 3.16. Jesus said, do not give dogs what is holy, And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So Jesus, immediately after saying, judge not, says, when you're dealing with somebody who is not responsive to spiritual truth, you you see them as a dog, you see them as a swine, and you you don't throw the the precious, valuable spiritual truth of the gospel before them in such a way that all they're going to do is trample it and turn and attack you. Later on in the gospel of Matthew, he's going to tell his disciples, if you go to a town and they don't receive you and your message, what do you do? Kick the dust off your own feet and leave. In other words, make a judgment about their spiritual condition based on how they respond to the gospel and respond accordingly. Add to that, if that weren't enough, add to that just a few verses later, still in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, Jesus said this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, But inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus is commanding us to evaluate what a person teaches and the fruit of their life, how they live by the word of God in order to make a judgment. Should I listen? Should I follow them? Or are they actually a wolf? What what would a, a ravenous wolf like to do amongst a flock of sheep? Devour them. So Jesus says, the most loving course of action is to judge them as a wolf in order to protect the sheep. In fact, when selecting the elders of a congregation, we're given lists of qualifications, aren't we? 1 Timothy chapter 3, 
Titus chapter 1. Just as a side note, why do you think we're given lists of qualifications in order to make a judgment as to whether or not this man is fit for the role of elder? Make a judgment according to the word of God? Here's, here's one of the qualifications that I just want to point out briefly. Titus 1.9, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. In other words, a godly elder who loves the flock will judge false teachers as false. He will rebuke those amongst the congregation who are living contrary to the word of God. And he does that. Why? Because he's hateful? No, because he loves Jesus and he loves Jesus' church. By the way, even those of us who are not elders are to exercise biblical, righteous judgment. By the way, there's a, there's a lot of references in the Bible that, that I could mention, but I'm just going to go to one that's very uh, powerful, I guess you would say, or gets my attention at least. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You're possibly not going to believe this as I read it, so you might want to turn there in your Bible. I, w- I would encourage you as a congregation to read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and then say, what, what are the implications of this for our congregational life. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to read verses 9 through 13. This is a a chapter discussing church discipline. The Apostle Paul is, is commanding this congregation to remove one of its members because he is engaged in unrepentant sin. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in those verses. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. He's like, I'm not telling you to stay away from from everybody who is guilty of this because then you would have to leave the planet. (laughs) But now... I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother who claims to be a Christian if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those on the outside, but purge the evil person from among you. As a congregation, we are to judge whether or not a person is repentant or unrepentant in their sin. If one of our members were to, over a period of time, reject biblical counsel, reject the loving admonition of the congregation, 
and say something like, you know what, I know the Bible says not to swindle people, but that's how the business world is nowadays, and I don't care what the Bible says, I'm not repenting, I'm gonna keep doing that. You know what we are to do? Judge. Purge the evil person from among you. God tells us to judge righteously. So what in the world are we then to make of Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 1, do not judge, right? We, we've just read verses that say, do judge. But then there are other verses that say, don't judge. Is there a contradiction in the Bible? Absolutely not. God does command us to exercise righteous judgment, judgment that is born out of love for God and the person that we are seeking to encourage in repentance. That righteous judgment is to be performed with humility and kindness while not compromising the truth or the glory of God. But there is a judging that is forbidden by God that is of a different kind, a different sort. And I'm calling it in this message unrighteous judgment. I already alluded to this in Matthew 7. It's a, a self-righteous judgment that ignores one's own sin, right? The, the log in your own eye. It doesn't seek to love God and others, but rather it would seek to, to make others pay when they violate my desires, what I like, what I want. It's a judgment that's exercised without any regard for the grace of God, which all of us need, and how many of us deserve? None of us. And it comes from the desire to see others condemned or punished in some way. Let me give you a practical example of this. Let's say your, your spouse comes home at the end of a really challenging day and he or she is especially tempted to be short with you. And, and you, you notice that and you're, you're trying to talk to them, maybe try to solve the problem for them only to be met with short and possibly hurtful words and responses. How do you respond? Are you concerned most about their love for God, their walk with Christ? Or are you most concerned about your selfish desire to be treated well? I, I deserve to be treated, but I was just trying to help. I have a right to be treated well. Do you begin to think angry, bitter thoughts like this? He or she always gets this way when they have a bad day or are busy. I was just trying to help. They never appreciate me. By the way, anytime you use the word, words always or never, <laughs> look out. You're possibly getting into the territory of unrighteous judgment. Maybe your tactic to punish them is to, to be quiet, to give them the cold shoulder, and maybe they calm down later on in the evening, they come to you, is, is there something wrong? No. No. Get in bed at night, you lay down, you roll over and turn away from them. What are you doing? 
you're making an unrighteous judgment. You're seeking to punish your spouse because they violated your desire to be treated well. You're not reflecting the grace of God towards you in Christ. You're not loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength or your neighbor as you love yourself. Let me give you another example. How do you respond when you find out that another person in your your church or another Christian doesn't do things like you. They don't share the same convictions as you do regarding things like how to educate their children or what movies they do or do not watch or even, I'm meddling here, how they fill out their ballot. Those are all things that we should come to biblical conclusion. We we should have biblical convictions about the Bible informs the way we approach each of those things, doesn't it? But does the Bible command how we do each of those things? I can't believe they send their kids to public school. I can't believe they watched that movie. They let their kids watch Disney. I can't believe they voted for that person or for that cause. Are they really Christians? Maybe they're just baby Christians. Perhaps at the next prayer meeting, you bring that up as a prayer request. Oh, let's, play, let's pray for the Smiths. They're, they watch Moana. We laugh at it, but those thoughts, if we allow them to grow inside of us, they affect how we treat other people in the congregation. And you know what? I've seen it. You have too. They breed divisions in the body of Christ, which is wicked. It's a self-righteous, overly critical sin. It's unrighteous judgment. It doesn't reflect God's grace towards you in Christ. And in fact, it elevates not God's standards, but whose standards? Yours. And if you don't go by my standards, I'm going to punish you for it. If you haven't noticed, this is something that the Lord has been working on in me. I'm preaching this sermon to myself this morning. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're more guilty of this than maybe we would think. You might not consider yourself as the judgmental type, but consider how many judgments you make about others daily. About your spouse, about your kids, about your coworkers, about fellow church members, fellow drivers on the road. Oh, they weren't even paying attention to me. You assume to know what they're thinking. You assume to know their motives. She only married me because of my money. He's only being nice to me because he wants something. You, You build a case 
in your mind like a skilled prosecuting attorney against the person who has violated your desire. You blow up, some of you do. Others of us clam up. All of us withhold kindness, and in some cases, we end relationships. Why? Because we make unrighteous judgments about others, and it all dishonors God because it does not reflect his grace towards us as undeserving sinners, and it violates his law, which is to love the Lord your God with what? Are your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and Jesus says there's a second commandment just like it. What? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So I've spent some time here. I want you to see there is a difference between righteous judging, we should do. We're disobedient to God if we don't do it. Then there is also unrighteous judgment. We are sinning against God when we do do that kind of judgment. And I think hopefully you've seen that uh, there's at least a temptation in each of our hearts towards that unrighteous kind of judging. So what do we do about it? How do we resist the temptation? How do I overcome making unrighteous judgments about others? I'll be honest with you. I'm, I, I've read the Bible. Maybe you've read the Bible as well. And yet, just over the past few months, I am shocked with how many verses in the Bible are about this. <laughs> There's a lot more than I was paying attention to when I was reading it for Bible school, Bible college. There is a slew of verses, Romans 14, uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. I mean, there's, there's tons of scriptures, and yet I'm just going to go to one verse, James chapter 4, verse 12. James chapter 4, verse 12. For me personally, I found this verse to be a sharp sword. And my battle against the enemy fighting off the temptation to make unrighteous judgments about others, and I trust that it will be a sharp sword for you as well. So yes, we are gonna look at verse 12. That is gonna be the focus of our study. We're gonna pull three truths out of it that are gonna help us overcome unrighteous judgments. But yet, I want to read verses 1 through 12, because I'm a preacher and I like to talk a lot. No, I I want you to see the full context of what's going on here. And then verse 12 really just drives the whole thing home. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. They don't ask God for it. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
So here's what James is saying. He's addressing this group of Christians. You guys are fighting with each other. I don't think they're literally murdering each other, but, but like Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty of what in your heart? Murder. You're, you're violating one another's desires, and how are you responding? You're fighting, you're quarreling, you're seeking to bring judgment upon one another. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now hear this, let it pierce your heart. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Happy Mother's Day, everybody. (laughs) Here's what I'm going to go through here. To overcome our unrighteous judgments, we must accept three truths seen in James 4, verse 12. Three truths we must accept in order to overcome unrighteous judgments. The first truth that we need to accept is the truth of God's unique position. The truth of God's unique position. Position. He holds a position that is unique. Nobody else can have it. There are several lawgivers and judge, judges. Is that what it says? There is only one lawgiver and judge. Who, who, whose position is that? Only God's. And two parts of that unique position that he alone holds are mentioned here. One, he is lawgiver. He is the one and the only one who gets to make up the law and then put it into effect. Now here's why this is so significant. Follow me on this. How often do we make unrighteous judgments about other people that in reality have nothing to do with God's law. 
We're not concerned about the other person's love for God. And it's not that we've got a verse, a chapter and verse in our mind that they've just broken. But the person just did something that I didn't like. Your bitterness or even self-righteousness in that case is not because you hate sin against God, but because you hate when people don't follow your law. When you selfishly demand that others treat you a certain way, you are in that moment seeking to overthrow God as lawgiver. The previous verse stated, we are judging the law of God because we are breaking it by not loving our neighbor and we're seeking to replace his law with our law. Now just think, in all the pages of Scripture, what person does that kind of attitude most characterize? Seeking to overthrow God and his position and seeking to establish one's own law, replacing God's. Who does that remind you of in Scripture? Satan. He was not content with his position as one of God's leading angels, but one of God's position. And for ages, he has been active in twisting the scriptures and seeking his law rather than God's to be put into place. So hear me, this is really convicting. We may never be more like Satan than when we make an unrighteous judgment against another person, desiring that they follow our law instead of being most concerned that we ourselves follow God's law. You see how wicked this is? There's only one lawgiver. That's God's unique position. Second aspect of that unique position, he alone is judge. God alone is the ultimate judge. And again, let me just clarify, this does not mean we don't call sin, sin. <laughs> because he is the judge, we call sin, sin. This doesn't mean that we don't call people to repent of sin, right? Jesus commissions his followers at the end of the gospel of Luke to go into all the world, go into all nations, and preach what? Repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Doesn't mean that, but it does mean that God alone establishes the law, therefore God alone enforces his law by punishing those who violate who has the right to punish sin? Do you have the right to get angry, maybe become physically violent? Do you have the right to verbally assault another person? Do you have the right to punish someone with the, the cold shoulder, seething in bitterness and giving them the silent treatment? Do you have the right to do that? No, you don't. I don't have the right to do that. We're not the judge. If someone has broken God's law, 
My job and your job is to lovingly pursue their repentance, proclaiming the gospel. Our job is even to forgive others if and when they do sin against us. But hear me, our job, we are not the judge. Our job is never to bring punishment for sin. That's God's unique position, not ours. God enforces his law. And there is a day coming when everything will come to light. Just a few verses later in this letter, James, chapter five, verses eight and nine, there's this instruction. It says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The judge is coming back. He will render final judgment. He alone knows every motive of every person's heart. Do you? terrible at reading people's motives. He alone knows every person's every thought. Do you? We're terrible mind readers. We tend to assume the worst. He knows every word every person ever speaks. He knows every action every person ever takes. He is standing at the door and he is coming to judge. But that's not our place. That's not our job. That's not our position. So if your coworker does something that, that you don't like or seems maybe a little suspicious to you and you interpret their motives in the worst possible way and you withhold kindness from them, you are trying to take whose position? God's. When your spouse does sin against you, spouses, do we ever sin against each other? It's going to happen. When it does happen, instead of being kind, forgiving them because God in Christ forgave you, if you respond by withholding kindness, speaking harshly, giving the silent treatment, on and on it goes, who, whose job are you trying to take? Whose position are you trying to take? God's. Repent. What did James say? Humble yourselves before the Lord. Resist the devil. Turn your laughing into mourning. Why? Because this is a sin against God. We are not him. And we dare not try to take his position. Humble yourself before the one and only lawgiver and judge. So if we're gonna overcome unrighteous judgments, first we must accept the truth of God's unique position. He alone is lawgiver and judge. And then second, we must accept the truth of God's unique ability. We must accept the truth of God's unique ability. What is he able to do? Well, there is only one lawgiver and judge, 
He who is able to save and to destroy. So we saw two aspects of God's unique position. Now, here are two aspects of God's unique ability. First, he is able to save. Let me ask you a question. Who is God able to save? Any lawbreaker who repents of their sin and places faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Isn't that why you're here this morning? Isn't that our hope? What does God save repentant sinners from? His righteous judgment? His wrath? Experiencing eternal condemnation in hell? As Jesus said, where the the worm never dies and the fire never goes out? It's really interesting on the night before Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross. He prayed that that God the Father would take what from him? The cup. What's that cup symbolize? The righteous anger of God, his wrath. He said, but not my will, but yours be done. And then he went to the cross, and how much of that cup did he drink? Every last drop for every repentant sinner. Is there a single drop left in that cup for believers to drink? No, he drank it all. If I truly believe that, why would I want my spouse or my coworker or somebody else to drink a drop of my wrath? Isn't that petty? I want God to save me. I want to be saved from hell. But it's inconsistent with that desire for me to at the same time desire you to pay for your wrongs done to me. By the way, that's what the entire book of Jonah is about. We're not going to study that book now. I think you're familiar with it. That, that book is not about how to survive in the belly of a large fish for a few days. That is in the book, and that happened. You know what that book is about? That's about how a prophet who had firsthand knowledge of God's mercy and grace refused to proclaim repentance because he did not want others to receive that same grace and mercy. And the dilemma that confronts God's people in that book is this. How can you personally love God for his grace and simultaneously not want it for others? He is able to save, amen? I want to be saved. And if that's really so, I will then extend mercy to others rather than seeking to judge them unrighteously. James stated earlier in chapter 2, verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
Don't you appreciate the mercy of God? Don't you appreciate that God the Father placed all of the wrath of God on Christ rather than on you? Then show that same mercy towards others, hoping to see God save them too. He is able to save. That's one aspect of his unique ability mentioned here. Then there's the flip side, right? If he is able to save, then flip the coin to the other side. He's also able to what? Destroy. Destroy. And I think you'll see this is both a warning and a comfort at the same time. But consider this. Who does God destroy? Some would say, oh, nobody. I just, I don't believe in that hell stuff, even though if you were to go through the Gospels, you would see that Jesus talks about that as much, if not more, than any other subject. Who does God destroy? Who does he judge? Who does he sentence to hell for eternal damnation and torment? Sinners who don't repent. How does he destroy them? I've just mentioned he sentences them to eternal damnation and hell, which is, is clearly the intended meaning. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And by destroy, he doesn't mean they go there and then it's over. He says the worm never dies and the fire never goes out. It's an ongoing destruction. It's, it's the wrath of God for eternity. So here's the warning. If you are unrepentant in your sin, including the sin of making unrighteous judgments about others, if you withhold mercy from others, you will not receive mercy, but destruction in hell. That what it says? So again, what should we do? Repent by the grace of God. By the way, I love how, did you catch in James 4, verse 6, it, it talks about the quarrels and you adulteresses, you're, you're at enmity with God, and then verse 6, but he gives what? Oh, praise God, more grace. And you know what that grace is, verses 7 through 10? The grace of repentance. Repent by God's grace. So that's the challenge. That's the warning. But on the flip side, there is a comfort, right? God is the one who destroys. Here's the comfort in that. Can you trust God to judge justly those who truly sin against you and remain unrepentant? Yes. Do you need to Try to get even. No. Should you be preoccupied with defending yourself against others? No. Instead, we follow the example of Christ himself described in 1 Peter 2.23. When he was reviled, what did he do? How did he respond? He did not revile in return. When he suffered, how did he respond? He didn't threaten 
how was he able to do that? And he was crucified. He, he was sinless. It was totally unfair. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He trusted that the Father would judge justly. He is able to destroy. He will render final and ultimate judgment. We don't need to attempt to take that into our own hands. In fact, our job is to trust him with that and seek to display Christ to others and how we interact with them. In fact, our job is to seek the salvation of the lost and the spiritual growth of the saved. Our job is not to seek, to get even, to make them pay, to judge. God will handle that. That's his unique ability. So we've seen, if we want to overcome unrighteous judgments, first we must accept the truth of God's unique position. He is lawgiver and judge. Second, we must accept the truth of God's unique ability. He, will, he saves, he destroys. And now third, we must accept the truth of our place in light of these truths. What's our place? Well, James gives it in the form of a question. <laughs> there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you? Who am I to judge your neighbor? I appreciate one commentator's response to this question. He said, the obvious answer is this. I am a fool to judge my neighbor. I have wickedly and wrongly claimed for myself the knowledge and authority that only God has. Rather than focusing my attention on loving and obeying God's law, I have nitpicked others' obedience and jumped to conclusions about their actions and their motives. I have not loved but rather have slandered and judged unrighteously. Mm. What is our place? Well, I think the, the key word in that last sentence that I just read, it's the key to this whole discussion. It's the word love. What distinguishes righteous judgments from unrighteous judgments is love for God and love for neighbor. It's no coincidence that James said here, who are you to judge your, what word? Neighbor, right? Because he wants it to click in our minds what he has just said in chapter two, verse eight. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So, so what's my place in all of this? My place is to humbly come under God's authority and towards others to love. Sometimes to love my neighbor means I say, repent. 
Sometimes to love my neighbor simply means that I assume the best about your motives rather than the worst. Sometimes loving you and you loving me means you, you confront sin, kindly, by the way. And other times it shows mercy and forgiveness and seeks peace. But in all of my judgments, I had better take the log out of my own eye first, right? And then, in love, Jesus says, I can at that point take the speck out of your eye and you can take the speck out of my eye. It's to all be driven by love for God and love for neighbor. So I am coming to the conclusion, and I just want to briefly give you four suggestions, four action steps that you could take if you maybe are, are convicted this morning that, hey, this is a temptation that I need to resist. Here are four action steps in no particular order. It's not a magical formula. These are ways that you can just come before God with an open heart and let him work on you. Action step number one, make a log list. Make a log list. What do I mean by a log list? Take the log out of your own eye. Consider your own sin. One of the reasons that we are, are so prone towards unrighteous judgment is because we focus so much on what other people do wrong, their sin, and don't consider whose sin? <laughs> Mine. Don't you have a lot more compassion for other sinners who are struggling when you consider the fact that you yourself are a sinner who's struggling? What sins do you struggle with? Maybe you're in a, a conflict and maybe this is not true, but maybe it's 99% the other person's fault and only 1% your fault. What's your 1%? And then give 100% of your attention to your 1%. <laughs> Take the log out of your own eye. Man, I wish we had time. We would go to Matthew chapter 18. Maybe you remember the, the parable of the unforgiving servant, right? This, this master, very kindly, he forgave one of his servants a massive unpayable debt. And then that same servant went out and he found a guy who owed him a little debt. And he chokes him out and he has him sent to jail. And the master who forgave so much comes and finds the servant who wouldn't forgive a little. And he's like, you wicked servant. If, you have if you're struggling to forgive somebody, that's a good passage to go to because here's what it points out. I'm about to fall over. If I compared my pile of sins against God to your pile of sins against me, how would it compare? Try to think of every sin you can ever think of that you've ever committed against God. That's a big pile. Now you, your sin against me, how does it compare? It doesn't. Isn't that humbling? Sometimes the things even, this is humbling, the things that I don't like you doing to me, you know what, I'm guilty of doing to you. <laughs> so consider your own sin. The Apostle Paul said it this way. 
just hear the attitude. This, he's, he's taking the log out of his own eye. He's exemplifying this attitude. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The biggest sinner in the world, in your eyes, should be yourself, not the other person. That's the attitude of the Apostle Paul. A second suggested action step, practice assuming the best of others. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things and then love believes all things. You know what that verse means? So far as I can, as long as the facts don't contradict it, I'm going to assume the best of your motives. There could be 10 possibilities for why you made a face or did something towards me. There could be 10 possibilities and only one of them be, be kind or positive. And I'm going to choose to do the, take the one, believe the one. Love believes all things. It's not loving to assume the worst in other people's motives. You can't read their mind. So, so far, so long as that is possible, practice assuming the best in their motives. Third suggested action step, make a different list. So you've got a log list. Now I want you to, to make a different list. Make a list of people that you regularly pass unrighteous judgments upon your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, whoever it is. Then list 12 things about them. I don't know why 12. I just saw somebody else say this. 12 things about them that are positive characteristics that you can thank God for. 12 good things about them from God's perspective and then turn it before God as a prayer. Bring it before God as a prayer because often what do we do? We assume the worst, we think about all the bad they've done and we don't think about the good things they bring. Fourth, Final suggested action step, consider your motive when you are judging. Honestly assess, am I, do I just not like what they did to me? Did they just violate one of my selfish desires? Or are they actually sinning against God? If it's just something I didn't like, let it go. If it's a sin against God, then, then you may have the opportunity after taking the log out of your own eye to take the speck out of theirs. But often, our unrighteous judgments are simply, I just didn't like what you said, did, etc. We need to ask, do I care most about loving God and loving my neighbor as I love myself? What's driving my judgments? So, brothers and sisters... We don't overcome unrighteous judging simply by avoiding making judgments. That's not possible. We overcome unrighteous judgments when we share Christ's mercy with others in humble anticipation of judgment day. So let's accept the truth about God's unique position, the truth of his unique ability in our place in light of it. And remember, behold, the judge 
is standing at the door. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this has been a a sobering study for me. I trust that it will be for others. I pray for those of us who are tempted to, to make unrighteous judgments, that we would embrace what you have revealed in this this verse that we've studied and and the others along with it, of course. And Lord, I pray that we would see within our own hearts uh, maybe the people, the places that we're most tempted to make those judgments. And I pray that we would become more like Christ by fighting against that sin, repenting of it, and learning to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love those around us as we already love ourselves. Father, I pray your, your blessing on this congregation. I pray, pray your blessing on each of the families here, their celebration of Mother's Day. We do, we do thank you that often mothers wear those goggles and assume the best instead of the worst. We give you the praise for that. We know that you've worked those, those things into their hearts. Father, I pray the rest of this day would be joyful celebration of your grace and your kindness to us and pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.